0: And welcome back to Morning Shot Uncut with your host Byron and today my guest is Rahman.
1: Hello Rahman. Yeah, so this is Byron's idea. Apparently the audience wants to know more about us. So in this particular scenario, Byron's going to interview me for this podcast. So hopefully you find that entertaining.
0: Yes, Ramon has interviewed all of us and we've all answered his questions and he remains behind the camera behind the mic and never actually says anything. So you know what I thought would be a good idea for the audience. Why don't we interview Ramon and find a little bit more about Ramon. So Ramon, thank you for joining the show today. You're in Johannesburg.
1: Have you always
0: lived in Johannesburg?
1: Yes. I got here when I was three and I've always lived within 50 kilometers of the city center. So, yeah, I've been here my whole life.
0: And how do you find Johannesburg? Because obviously you've got
1: pretty much a shithole mayor at the moment, don't you? Johannesburg's great for a number of reasons. Number one, close to hunting areas. Like you drive two, three hours, you, you know, in the countryside. Uh, Number two, it's the cheapest place in the world to live for rich people. Not that I'm one of those rich people, but it is. It's relatively cheap here. Number three, I know people are going to laugh, but it's diverse, right? I've got Indian mates, colored friends, black friends, white friends, and everyone in between, European friends, and they all like coalesce around Johannesburg. And number four or five, I don't know what to be on. It's, it's huge. There's lots to do. It's still the economic capital of Africa. I don't care what anyone says. The opportunities are massive. The people that you meet here can change your life. So job is great. I don't give a fuck about who the mayor is though.
0: So obviously you mentioned a point there, which some of our audience are not actually aware of. So you said that you've been there since you were three. So you correct me if I'm wrong. So you were born in France and you moved to South
1: Africa when you were three. That is right. We were fleeing socialism, Byron. And my parents thought South Africa (laughs) would be the antithesis of that. They were a bit wrong, I'm afraid, but yes, born in France, Moved here when I was three,
0: and you obviously have a, a mother and your father. They're still with you, right?
1: Uh yes. Well, and your mother's moved back to France. So right? mother, that's correct. My mother's in France, and my father is here, not too far from, from me. You've got you. How many kids are there in the family? I have three sisters
0: plus me. So Four. So four of you, so a rather large family, and I believe that some of your sisters are actually in the shithole that is called Australia.
1: Unfortunately so. They found love over there, and yeah, God bless them. (laughs) 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 I wouldn't move there for love or money.
0: So that actually brings up to the the first point. Well, obviously, something that we talk about quite a bit. And obviously, our audience would really like to know that the pleasantries are out of the way. So let's actually look at a little bit more about Ramon. So you've often said that you wouldn't immigrate.
1: Why? Well, where should I immigrate to? This is my home. This is where I belong. This is where I've been for 33 years. I've been to most places in the world. Nothing ever grabs me as feeling like home. And as we keep saying on this podcast, this is a pioneering society. This is where I want to be. I want to be a part of those pioneers. I don't want to live comfortably and get Starbucks and go for a pint at the pub and feel safe. Like That sounds very boring to me and my family. So I don't know where else I would rather be. Maybe in other parts of Africa. Like if I had to leave... I'll go to, I actually heard from someone from Zimbabwe today who lives there. Peaceful, calm, no crime. Zimbabweans are pretty good people. So maybe, who knows, maybe we'll go to Zimbabwe if we really need to leave South Africa, but not to Europe or any place that's like overtly white. Yeah. So obviously we've discussed this on many occasions, and
0: you know the obviously the audiences bulk water will always be. But yeah, Ramon, think about the opportunities for your kids. Your kids will have so much more opportunities in Australia or New Zealand. And what would your response to that be?
1: Well, opportunity for what? to, to do what? Um, I, I I just don't don't get it. I mean, I understand if you want to be like a corporate mole and have a white collar job, yeah. South Africa might not be the best place for that, but you're in the wrong country if you want that. This country is about pioneers. This country is about, you know, crime and smuggling, and <laughs> you know that's how you get rich in Africa by you know trying to have a corporate job and doing your 9 to 5 and getting your pension, and that worked 30 years ago. Now, no, like you, you can't have an employee mindset. If you live in South Africa. I know that's like hard to it sound makes me sound like an elitist, which I am maybe, but you can't have that employee mindset to thrive. You can live comfortably as an employee, don't get me wrong, but to thrive, you must be an employer. I would agree with that. And as you
0: both know, we are both employers. I employ more people than you do, but hey, that's it's right. It's no competition, is it? Anyway. So actually, that does bring on to a different, very interesting question. So obviously, what do you do for work?
1: I'm an attorney. Well, not really an attorney. I didn't actually write my exam. So I'm a, I am ai call myself a legal consultant. So I got an LLB, and I do deceased estates. So when people die, I make sure all their stuff gets finalized correctly. I'm also a director at DRSA. And I'm the co-owner of Morning Shot along with you. So those are the big three things that keep me busy on a daily basis. Yeah. Obviously, you also do some insurance stuff. Mm. Which we did together.
0: Absolutely. So obviously, you are not an admitted attorney, but you are a practicing attorney, but not in a law firm. So tell me a little bit more about that. How did that actually start out? Because obviously, you are... You do own your own company, doing estates. Yes. So you must have had a uh, period where you qualified and
1: then you thought to yourself, yeah, I'd go get a job and become a lawyer. What happened then? No, so I did my first year of articles in Boxburg of all places. For those who know Joe Boxburg's really great. And then after a year, I just couldn't work for someone. But during that period of time, I did the estates. He was a conveyancer and there were a lot of estates that came through where you have to finalize the estate to transfer the property. So over a year, I learned how to do estates. And then, I mean, after a year of being employed, I just knew I would never want to be employed in my life ever again. And so I just created a company and I said, well, I was doing the estates for the conveyance. I'm sure there are a lot of other attorneys out there who have clients who do pass away, but they don't specialize in estates. So if I can be a legal consultant to them in terms of administrating estates, I'm sure there's a, a viable niche in the market. And there was, and there was. But the problem with that is you sort of looking at state failure in the face because for an estate to proceed, you need authority from the master's office of the high court, which is part of the high court. They don't have any backup for load shedding. The corruption is incredible. They're very slow on authorizing anything. So an estate that should take six months takes two years and you only get paid right at the end. So, yeah, it used to be. Lucrative, but now state failure. Was just delayed. It, yeah, state failure has made that a bit less lucrative.
0: Yeah, so obviously you then got involved in DRSa, and for those who don't know the story of DRSa, well, that's a podcast in itself, and we won't go there. But what what actually prompted you to to join DRSa in the first place?
1: I was invited by the former director Rob. Uh, Rob was on a podcast that I did previously to morning Shot called Renegade Report. And I met Rob during the course of that. Uh, He had this DSA thing I thought it was a wonderful idea, public participation. And uh, after quite a few twists and turns, I finally became director of DSA in 2021, if I remember correctly, and have been ever since. I like the idea of holding the government accountable. So DSA is a good vehicle for that.
0: Yeah. So obviously you mentioned Renegade Report, which was obviously the podcast you had prior to Morning Shot. How did that start?
1: A day on Twitter. So not really, I promise you. I actually know the guy who dared us. So myself and my co-host at the time was called Jonathan Witt, who's a doctor and he's still on, on Twitter now. A guy guy just tagged both of us. Like, when are you guys going to start a podcast together? Because you agree on everything. So Jonathan knew Gareth Cliff. And so he called Gareth and said, "Would you need podcast hosts on Cliff Central? And Gareth's like, yeah, sure. Why not? Come on through. So we went on through. And uh, he says, I'll give you six podcasts. If you get under a 1,000 downloads in total, I'm going to can it. I said, no, that's fine. We don't get paid for it, of course. I think the first episode got 2,000 downloads in like three days or something like that. We immediately were the second largest podcast on Cliff Central after Gareth himself. And um, we did that for, from 2015 till 2020. So however long that is, five years. No money in it. But we spoke to Jordan Peterson. We spoke to so many people that went on to become like real celebrities. James Lindsay, I think we spoke to James Lindsay once. We spoke to who else? Michael Schellenberger, who's been on Joe Rogan a few times as well. So, yeah, it was a great time. Learned a lot. And that's when, you know, the politics, as I knew it, in my head, like changed fundamentally. Because here's the thing about content that people don't really understand. The more you do it, the more you speak to people, the more sources you get, It, it changes the way you look at the world. Right, So for us, and I think you might, I'm going to ask you a question now. When we talk about politics, before we met Gayton McKenzie, it was about like sort of principle and about not being X, Y, and Z. Then we met Gayton and he sat us down for that day and he spoke about what politics is about. It's about power. It's about effecting change. And after that discussion with Gayton, like my view on politics has changed dramatically. Not because Gayton is completely correct, but some of his ideas are filtered through in terms of like, okay, it gives you a better understanding of why people are in politics other than just grifting or other than just, um, what do you call it, other than just principle. So the more you, to, you talk to people, and when you get a report, we had, I think, 250 episodes with 250 different people. It just changes the way you think about the world dramatically.
0: Yeah. So obviously that also led on to your stint afterwards to tea with helen for those of you who don't know you hosted a podcast with helen Zille. so helen supposedly was trying to do a podcast where she humanized herself after quitting the da and obviously the idea behind that was she just sit down and basically do do a renegade report type format but with helen as opposed to you and you obviously you managed it because you had experience with renegade report how, how did
1: that all come about so I produced all of that. So I was actually helping the Institute of Race Relations um, at the time, and she joined them after she resigned from the DA or she retired from the DA in 2019, I think it was. And then Helen arrived, and I'm like, Helen, you know, first of all, you're in awe because you hear of Helen, and then she's right there in front of you, talking mm-hmm. to you like a normal person. And then I said, to, and then I said to her, you, know what, Helen? I think you'll be like a perfect host for a podcast, because you're interested in ideas. I knew that she was sort of anti-woke and didn't care too much about getting into trouble for saying things. Mm -hmm. So I pitched this idea of like tea with Helen. You you have a a tea with someone that's a guest, in other words. And she loved the idea. And so I produced, I think we only had about five episodes before she went back to the DA. Ironically, all the people that she invited onto the show were all the people that blocked me on Twitter. <laughs> they were all journalists who hated Helen Ziller. <laughs> so so they, they would be invited to tea with Helen. They'd be like, oh, yeah, I love this idea. I'm coming. And then I'm the one that greets them at the front door. And they're like, oh, what are you doing here? You. <laughs> like, Sorry, I run this. I'm the producer. <laughs> so that oh, was pretty God. fun.
0: God damn it. Yeah, that's that's uh that was an interesting story. What happened to Renegade Report? Because obviously we know eventually closed. So what
1: happened there? I think we sort of were very early or well, like sort of conservative right wing podcasts, Very early, no money, and most predominantly Jonathan. Jonathan wanted to go full time medicine. I think he just qualified mm. as a specialist, and for me, I just you know had a child. No, not well, no, I was going to have my second child, and I thought you know what. It takes like two, three hours of my week, doesn't pay me anything. We just thought, let's just end it there. But the legacy of Renegade Report is more interesting. I think a lot of the stuff that we see online from right-wing South Africans is based largely on what Renegade Report created in the first place. Like, I really think it opened Mm -hmm. up the political space to the right online and showed people that, you know, it is possible to have a brand that does that. So... At the end of the day, it was just a question of it's Sort of, it. Yeah, it, it was past. We 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 ended off at the peak, essentially.
0: Yeah, I mean, obviously, since since Renegade Report, we've seen obviously, you know, we obviously have Morning Shot now, which is kind of a it's got an offshoot or a reincarnation of Renegade Report, but. As you and I discuss frequently, there are a lot of copycats now, right? I mean, there's Joe Amelia doing a show, then there's obviously Big Daddy Liberty does his show, and there's a variety of others that are all copying the format. Mm. Um none of them are as successful as what we do. Obviously, there's Chris Wyatt trying to do what he's doing. And in terms of me <laughs> the- yeah, out, so- Jesus. <laughs> the circle that 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 we're operating in we are we are obviously the most dominant at the moment obviously there are you know there's there's let 's call it the other spectrum, you know penny the black who's doing his stuff on there i mean he gets more views than we do, and obviously there is like the black equivalent of what we are doing, but I think on the on the right on the white equivalent, we are probably the most dominant. So I think it's probably accurate to say that you were a pioneer on that front. Obviously, you did ultimately get stuck at home during lockdown. You couldn't trade as a lawyer. I remember that you know we spoke about the story because obviously the master's offices were closed and everything shut down. So you sat at home feeling very frustrated, and you decided to start morning shot. Tell me about uh, what went on in your head when you did
1: that. Actually, it was fortuitous. I started that before COVID was a thing. So I started, the first video went up in January of 2020. So this was, you know, way before lockdowns and things like that around the world. Hmm. I read a book called, during December of 2019, called Atomic Habits by James Clear, which is a phenomenal book. It's the only self-help book that actually helps you in a material way, because it tells you that you are not, your habits define who you are as a person. Right? So a lot of people say, oh, genetically, I wake up early or genetically, he's a better golf player. Most of that stuff is absolute bullshit, right? For the most part, you are defined by the habits you take on in life and the habits you stick to. So if you are a a gymnast or a sports person, the habit of eating protein with every meal is what defines you as an athlete rather than reverse engineering. And And the book basically just said, if you want to be good at something, just do it as often as possible. And, and make it iterative, so make it better each time you do it. So I thought to myself, you know, I always wanted to do sort of video stuff. As a child, I wanted to be like a film director, you know, direct the next Black Hawk Down or whatever movie, you know, <clears throat> I loved at the time. And I thought, well, you know, YouTube could, could do that for me. Right, let, let's do a podcast that's that's video because I think video is far better because people can see who you are and what you look like and the way you you talk it it builds a lot better rapport than just audio and so okay what am I going to do videos on well I know my politics I'm a political operator I know people in politics I've been talking to people in politics for the longest period of time so therefore I will just talk about politics and that's how Morning Shot was born it was always what I was very certain about was it was always going to be at 7am every morning, 10 minutes on one or two stories. And that's really how it started.
0: Yeah. And then obviously during lockdown, because people were sitting at home feeling very frustrated, uh, I suppose you got a little bit more um, attention, for want of a better word. So Just fortuitous.
1: Be better yeah, very fortuitous. I think lockdown helped immensely. I mean, I put in a lot of hours. I mean, we did. I think I had a live stream every day at five for 18 months remember or so. That. And uh, the videos, I was by myself. I don't know how to edit or anything or, you know, create artwork. Go back on this channel three years. Look at those uh, thumbnails. <laughs> Horrible. So I did the whole thing by myself and I was just learning on the go. But uh, yeah, lockdown certainly did help. That's for sure.
0: Yeah, and then obviously at around I think it was like twenty five thousand subscribers or something like that. You obviously had the birth of your second child, and then you decided to uh, originally for those of you who don't know the story, obviously you decided that you were getting to the point of quitting YouTube and saying, "Screw this uh, morning shot thing! I'm not getting paid for it, and I've got kids and families and jobs." And you nearly you nearly hacked it in, and for a period, I think there was. a uh, in April period, you uh, you reduced the, the videos on Morning show quite a lot. That obviously prompted you and I to, to take over the reins and make it a little bit easier and change the format. So, I think the audience would like yeah, to yeah. know a
1: little bit about your mindset from that period. Like what went through your head? So the original thing was I, I was doing it for close to two years sort of alone, right? And, you know, making a video, it, it takes five minutes or seven minutes to watch it but to make it is like three three hours four hours especially if you're doing it by yourself uh youtube wasn't paying much at all and after a while i mean byron even you know sometimes we start recording we're like what the hell or do we have to really talk about this stupid thing again like it's just like it's almost like a a continuous stream of bullshit, for south african news every day so i thought to myself at the time, I was I was researching YouTube, like there was no tomorrow. And what was really gripping the viewers of YouTube was like these long, very well produced documentaries. But of course, you can't make one every day because it takes like thirty hours to make one. So I thought to myself, okay, cool, let's make those things rather. So I have time to script it. I have time to do the editing, and I had help for editing back then. And then we released i think for a month we released about four or five or six and they went nowhere they went nowhere people didn't like them they didn't understand how we go from you know daily shows to like these i i think they were good documentaries but they they were a little bit all over the place and the the, the transition from daily personality driven news to sort of less personal less personality driven but more interesting better produced content just really didn't work for the morning shot audience whatsoever so then you and i had a discussion we're like okay cool let's just share responsibilities then let's co-host the show because then we sort of bound together and we rely on each other to do the show together all the time and that's really where that that started and i think it's worked out quite well Well, it
0: didn't work out to start. I mean, it was very difficult to kind of like learn to gel together. I wasn't as experienced in podcasting as you were. Um, you know, that became you know for those who who watch these kind of things, they look at them and they think, well, it's just natural, right? You just sit in front of a camera and talk. I mean, we've seen it on Twitter. A guy will go, "Ah, you two are just two two stooges that just sit in front of a camera and talk. How hard can that be?" And actually, it's a lot harder than you think, right? I mean, the first time I think you you said to me, you were like, yeah, here's an exercise to get you comfortable with the camera. Like, just go to the camera, one minute, just say who you are, what you do, just just talk. And I'm like, it seems like the easiest, most stupid type of thing in the world. And then like, I think I had to record the video like nearly 20, 30 times. I think people at the back of my office probably heard me swear because it's, it's tough, man. It's actually really tough. It is so, tough. Um,
1: people have no idea what it means to speak to an inanimate object and keep eye contact with someone who doesn't have eyes and try and make sense of the words you're saying. And it's super tough. It's like doing public speaking without ever having done public speaking. It's the weirdest thing. And no one understands it unless they try it.
0: Absolutely. I think once you've done it, then you're just like, ah, actually, it, it becomes easier with time. But, you know, you, I will say, you know, I don't often talk positively but you were very patient with me, and you were actually very, very good at uh, teaching me stuff. And you know, any development I made on that front I uh, wholly a tribute to to you on that front. So, oh, that's not just thank you. Buddy. That's not to that's not to stroke your ego. It's just it's just true. But um, you know, obviously, we it took some time to get used to. But you know, I will say that even from my own perspective, and I'd like to hear your perspective on this, mm. but. Researching the news every day and like really being there and being in tune with stuff—it's soul destroying, man. Like it, like sometimes you know you gotta go make a video and you know like people are just gonna be like really like nah, that's nah. Like you know you know that it's gonna like make make people feel nah. They're just gonna feel like really upset and you like it's because it, you're upset, you so you know like. <laughs> But you somehow gotta make a video on this, and then obviously you know all the connecting dots of where things are going, and like there's just a core of your soul that just feels like empty, and it's uh it's tough, man. Like when you have to go report on the news every single day, like
1: soul destroying, yeah. Huh? Yeah, but also I think it's very important for people to understand, like, we're not here to be like there's a lot of people, <sighs> a lot of grifters out there that that that, that like paint the worst case scenario, like the blacks are coming for you and like the thumbnails, like a black guy with a machete in his teeth with blood dripping. Like, you know, like, like that's not us at all. Cause you'd be Bart, watching loving laugh again. <laughs> I, I do not want to say anything, but yes, but a lot of people sell fear on YouTube. And I think fear sells very well. And I think we, if we had fear to sell, we would be at 200,000 subscribers with millions of views, but we don't want that because you changed my mind on something. Um, I'm talking to Byron here because Byron came onto the show and he's like, I don't want people to immigrate." I'm like, why? Who gives a shit if they immigrate?" It's like, no, I mean, you know, we need people with skills here. We can't have a brain drain. It's difficult. You know, the, the more mediocre the population becomes, the more difficult it is to do business and to build stuff and to become stateless and and pioneering. And I thought, oh, actually, it's actually a very good idea. So you gave me the um, idea of making a video called Don't Emigrate which still holds up very well somewhere in our channel. Then I went on Conscious Caracol's channel to talk about don't emigrate. And I think that has changed the way we do our videos as well. So before I used to be like, all like, you know, the ANC wants to kidnap your kids and put your wife in a gulag and then we'll, you know, all the rest of it. And it must still be true. Which, which is probably still true, uh, don't get me wrong, still true. But now that we have this idea of we don't want to scare people, we want to inform them to allow them to make better choices to stay, it's a lot more of a nuanced, tricky position than just like balls to the wall, the, the world is falling over. And, and our videos are not about that. Like We don't want our audience to go. We don't want our audience to feel despondent. We don't want our audience to um, commit suicide. We're like, the world's going to shit. Yes, South Africa's going to shit in these ways. But in other ways, it's becoming, you know, the best society in the world. competent government, absolute freedom. You can do whatever you want for the most part. And there are ways to make money that falls outside of the state ambit. Like, to me, this is a perfect scenario to really flourish as a person. And hopefully our videos show that. And hopefully people take that on board and and live a much better life in South Africa with the mindset that we ask them to adopt. That's the hope at least.
0: Yeah, and I noticed that actually I did have that conversation with you mm-hmm. and I remember actually having that devil's advocate thing. It was almost like an argument with us off camera, like, why do you want people to leave? And I was like, and I remember explaining that to you and I, I recall that you did have that that uh, that podcast afterwards with Conscious Gary. Ooh. And I thought that actually was very interesting, because for me, I still started saying to you afterwards, I noticed a conscious turn in a lot of the online media platforms. All of a sudden, Afri Forum made a, a video, Ernest made a video about why you shouldn't immigrate. Conscious Karikor did that, that uh, famous documentary he did with uh, Russell Lombardi, where he was like, need to build a trench and like, all of a sudden, you started hearing certain people say like, look, immigration might not always be a best option. Whereas as I think we both know everybody, especially if you've got white and content in your skin, then, you know, everybody in this country is kind of raised with the idea of one day you should immigrate. It's just like it's in the DNA. It's like ABCD one day I will immigrate EFG. You know, it's like it's, it's just it's just part of the way that people are are taught you know one times one is one one times two is two one times three is one day i will immigrate to australia you know it's just like it's it's in the dna man so it's it was really rare to hear people say the reverse i mean obviously there's this whole hashtag i'm staying thing but you know, that's just some some stupid people trying to virtue signal, isn't it? Whereas it's actually saying, yeah. I'm going to stay because I want to do this. This actually was was different. And it was great to see that after we had had that conversation, that even your own podcast started to affect the other way that other people spoke. I mean, I, I will say that was well over a year ago. And it does feel like the mood is changing a little bit now. Some of the podcasts have got back to fear porn especially with some of the things that the uh, the ANC is doing. I mean, I was very presently surprised to, to watch a video today with uh, Ronaldo Reus, and he's done a, a video on there around the NHR, going, guys, don't panic, you know, minimum time period to get this thing up and running. That's with no court cases and nothing. It's like 15 years, you know, it's like, and that's assuming the ANC is still in power and pff, there's no ways they're probably going to be, with you ad court cases and ANC screw ups and the way they can't manage anything, we're probably looking at twenty, thirty years minimum, and there's no ways the bill will survive that long. So that was a nice measured response. And that but that's not the norm, as I'm sure you you appreciate. But going yeah. back to our con sorry,
1: go for no, it. No, sorry. But I really think lockdown has killed that. I, I really think people were thinking to themselves, oh, the ANC is actually not competent, but they are the government and we should sort of fear them a little bit and things like that. And then lockdown came and they're like, oh, no, alcohol, no cigarettes, no, nothing. And then the ITs, say, yes, boss, yes, boss. And they sit in their house for three weeks and then it's extended to five weeks. And they're like, oh, I'm dying of nicotine withdrawal. And then I think after like a month of this bullshit, people are like, you know what? Fuck you, Cyril. (laughs) And fuck your mother as well. And I'm just going to go get cigarettes and I'm going to get them delivered to my house For a cheaper price, I'm going to go next door to my neighbor, grab whiskey and pay them in, I don't know, in some other ways. I really think lockdown has brought people together that wasn't possible without it. And it really showed how incompetent, useless, malicious and evil the ANC actually is. But the most important element is that they are possibly the most incompetent government the world's ever known. And once you have the mindset of the ANC being completely incompetent, whatever they do becomes far less important. So I think there's a con- the con contextual us, plus the lockdown, plus intra- interpersonal relationships developing throughout all that stuff, sort of comes to like, you know, we can live quite comfortably here, as long as we ignore the government. We are aware of what they're trying to do, but we've got time to circumvent it and, and build things that do that anyway. So I think there's quite a, a variety of reasons why people will stay, but it's a good confluence of factors that have made it so.
0: Yeah, I'd I'd agree. I think for me personally, only speaking for myself, and I'm not the one being interviewed, but you know, lock, lock lockdowns did kind of show to me that if any if I ever had any thought that governments were needed, I think lockdowns turned me into the world's biggest libertarian, man. Like I just I got fed up with governments after that. If it was the UK government, the US government, the South African government, I didn't care. I just look at every government now and I just think they're evil. I just think states need to go, man. Like for me personally, I remember sitting there in the, and I got actually stranded in the UK during lockdown. I couldn't travel. I couldn't get flights. Like okay, It was horrendous, man. And I remember sitting there hearing, oh, we're going to lock down again. And it was like, for what? Like, there's no reason... I got a business in the UK and this is like dying. And it's like, for, for, for what? Like there is no logic here. So yeah, I, I think I think you're right. You know, people people did kind of get red pilled on, on governments with the lockdowns. But, you know, coming back to the content, as we were saying, making content every day, it's like quite soul destroying, especially when it's like all this negativity around, you know, what's going on. I mean, obviously, since we started, doing this as a as a format we've obviously had escom and all sorts of other shit go on so we you may recall we actually tried to lighten up the videos a little bit we did a couple like spoof videos last year where we we're like oh look juju got kidnapped that was yeah. a great one the and the ancestors that you know the ancestors uh telling the anc what to do um, we introduced nelson to the show which we never actually introduced it. It was supposed to be like a one-time gig, and people loved it so much that it was just like on every video after that. But um, I mean that those, those videos, those videos were great. But I mean, they they you know the audience didn't typically kind of like want to see that all the time, right?
1: Yeah, but but I do get a sense though, and you must tell me this is correct. Like I, I am enjoying them. Like I don't feel like we are like so obsessed with like, analytics now and things like that. Like we we make a video. I edited to to try to be the best video possible, and it, it's nice if it does very well, and we're, like, a bit concerned if it doesn't, but it's a lot more fun doing content now, having this mindset of, like, it actually doesn't matter if what we say will turn out to be true, because... Uh, the, you know these people are just useless like if the ANZ if they do get together to form a government okay yeah i'm sure bond markets are gonna fuck out and a variety of other things but oh, it's that's I, I just i it just doesn't matter so much
0: hmm. yeah i get that i get that although i will say obviously we we experimented quite a lot last year <laughs> with content. We? you know whether it was um whether it was all the just us riffing together or talking about the news or doing spoofs. We did quite a spoof spoofs. And then I think at one point in time, one of the spoofs we pushed so far, we were like, man, like, are we going to get arrested for this? Like, I remember you turning around to me going, ha ha ha. We might land up at the human rights commission. And we both looked at each other. We're like, actually, we may genuinely land up at the human rights commission. We had mm-hmm. to go back on all the spoof videos and actually put a disclaimer on them. This is a spoof. This is not serious. It's like, Okay. But um, we also obviously did some extra interviews. I mean, interviews were something that we had neglected for a while. Last year, we went on a little bit of a campaign and we actually started to interview certain politicians and stuff. Uh, we did Herman Mashaba. We did uh, you know, Kenneth Mishueh of the ACDP. We try to get away from just the DA stuff because the DA is usually the only one to answer the phone, which means that they unfortunately...
1: That's how we actually became the DA shills, or purportedly was because the the DA were the only people saying, Yeah, sure, let's do interviews. Everyone else, like, sort of just ignored us.
0: (laughs) That's right. And it's like because they were the only ones that answered the phone, they were the only ones that landed up on the show. But it wasn't that we weren't calling everybody else, they were just the only ones that answered.
1: Yeah, I mean, Gaten, how long long did it take? I apologize, Brian. How long did it take for us to get Gaten for a day? Almost a year or 18 months? Yeah, it took forever. It took forever, and now that we did it, like he understands what we're doing, and he I think he likes us. Um, so yeah, it, it takes a while to get the trust of these people. Good well, good look at
0: look at Lux. I mean, I've had I've had actual interview schedule with the guy six times. Sometimes I'm logged on waiting for him to log on, he doesn't pitch, mate. Like, it's just it's not as easy as it seems, right? But there was uh, an interview last year, you may recall. That's uh really had, I believe, a profound effect on you. And that was with uh, Doug Wilson. And obviously, I watched some of Doug's content because I'm far more right wing than you are, my friend. Me and my crazy, crazy Christian rat. And uh, I said to you, there's this guy who's like Doug Wilson. And I said, Why don't we why don't we interview that guy? He seems pretty based. And then I contacted Doug. Doug was like, I don't know who these weird-ass people at Morning Shot are. So he called up Sakhelika, and he was like, have you ever heard of these guys? And they were like, yeah, yeah, we've been interviewed by them. And he came on the show. But in preparation for that, obviously, you started watching a lot of Doug Wilson's videos. So for, for reference, I suppose we should start this off at the top. So you were born a Catholic, and you were raised in a Catholic household. Was that your mom or your dad's side? Both sides both sides and Mm -hmm. you went to a catholic school yes so you did all your catechisms Mm -hmm. good sunday boy and then what happened
1: well you know when you are 20 and you go to university and uh, you start seeing the the degenerate secularism of uh, modern day life that is very appealing right so you know you 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 had 20 years of sort of the same sort of teaching and then uh, someone introduces you to new idea, and you're like, oh, my word, a new idea. Let's go down the rabbit hole. So you start reading Richard Dawkins and Hitchens and Dennett and the atheists in general. Sam Harris. Uh, Sam. Oh, God, yeah. Sam Harris. And then you're like, yeah, this makes sucks, so much more sense. Like, my whole childhood was a lie. <laughs> you know? Because at 21, you know everything, right? So that really was it. I mean, I blame university and meeting all sorts of people that I never knew before. And these were just godless people. They seemed fun though at the time. But I was never Nietzsche, Nietzsche was fun,
0: but he still died from syphilis, so
1: I actually went to Nietzsche's house in Switzerland, believe it or not. I love Nietzsche, by the way. One of my favorite philosophers. Uh, so that really was it. Like, you sort of just, you know, once you leave the house and you, you get to meet new people, you imbibe the ideas that they have. And some of them are, are excellent, like, you know, PhD philosophers who can argue that a paper bag is actually a, a moon of Saturn based on these fundamental principles. And you just, you've just, been around with germ
0: again, haven't yeah. you? <laughs> <laughs> He's not
1: a philosopher. <laughs> but he would
0: probably argue that uh, the moons of Saturn are a paper bag. So.
1: Yeah, but he, I don't think he can philosophically argue that um, as much as my friends can. And then what, what really changed after that was, I mean, once you have children, you know, once you love something more than yourself or your wife, it changes your your idea of life fundamentally. And I started following a few more sort of Christian apologetics on Twitter. I read I read a few Christian apologetics growing up, and uh, you just revert back to, to what you know, Because it makes much more sense in the time that you live in. Because the fundamental problem with liberalism in the classical sense, and the British sense of the word, is that when you actually read Locke and you read the Enlightenment thinkers, they were describing a philosophy of rationality for believers, for Christians. It's not a moral foundation. It's not a moral philosophy, the Enlightenment. It was basically that we really know that you're moral people and then we can just add to that morality through rationalism and you can believe what you want and all the rest of it. But if you take the morality of religion out of the enlightenment, you're left with, well, what do we have now where everyone is a cat and a dog and transhuman and the truth doesn't matter. So the, I didn't get red pulled. Like I just saw the world and thought, fuck, what a terrible place. I don't want to be like that.
0: Mm. But I know that actually a lot of people at the time said it was my fault. My fault. I turned you into a a Christian rat. I pulled you more right. I I corrupted the great remand because you were a big atheist before then. Now, would you say that you've gone particularly heavily religious and you've gone like proper Sunday school and reading your Bible every night? Or would you just say that it was just your your framework of reference has changed.
1: No, I made a few friends who are uh, like Catholic priests, uh, especially like the European ones. There's quite a few here in Johannesburg. So I get along very well with them. And I don't go to church. Um, I'll do baptize my children. They will have their their confirmation and and all that sort of stuff. But I think as a a sort of cultural heritage, it's very important rather than God doesn't exist in church. God doesn't exist on Sundays only. It's like it's sort of you know, his power flows through your actions. So I've always deemed to be myself, deemed myself to be rather quite moral. Like I don't lie to people. I don't screw them over. I don't hurt people uh, unless unless it's warranted. So I, I don't think I've ever left the sort of Judeo-Christian ethos. It's just my ideas about it have changed.
0: Mm. And what, do you, and that, interview that we did with douglas will you say that it's it changed the way you thought on these things or
1: no i need to look back so uh, unfortunately the douglas wilson interview is like our worst performing video ever i don't know if you know right I know but looking looking but what, what, what douglas does very well like he doesn't have to use scripture to make a fundamental point about humanity Like, he doesn't have to say scripture says trans people are sinful or things like that. He just says it's not true. He doesn't use scripture to make that argument. He just says it's not true and don't fall for the bait. Like, it's just very straightforward. Mm -hmm. It's like if you go to, you know, it's like people who live in corporates. And I'm I'm, I'm sort of working with someone who was in corporates for a long time. And just to get that person, just to tell the truth, is impossible. They've got all this jargon and terminology and this and that. You're like, listen, we are fucked. We need to do X. That's what you need to say. I don't know why we need our meeting to, to do anything else. And that's what Douglas does. He just like cuts through the noise completely, goes straight to the point, using words everyone can understand. And that's very persuasive.
0: Yeah, I really like his content. I must say the one thing that I did find in that uh, that interview that we did with him which I did kind of stop and think about quite a bit. And he was like, you know, the world is getting more kind of crazy and tyrannical. And he's like, in the old days, you just traveled West, right? You went to the new frontiers and you found new places. He's like, look, there's nowhere to go now. The whole world's uncovered. Everybody, Everywhere's populated. And we've got, you know, we've got borders everywhere. and We've got established orders and blah, blah, blah. He's like, there is nowhere to go. So we even said to him, what do you do, Douglas? Like, you know, obviously a big thing in South Africa is we talk about immigration, like, You immigrate, and he was like, "Well, to where? When you get there, are you gonna have the same problem? And then what are you gonna do? Immigrate again? Like, what are you gonna do?" Yeah, it was that. That was that for me was quite a, should we say, a somber, a somber, a somber dose of laugh because he was just like, you know, there's nowhere to go, my friends. Like, you can go over there, but you're just gonna get the same shit all over again. And it it was it was interesting. It was an interesting view from him. But obviously, I noticed that following that. That uh, that interview, you know, some of the way that you referred to things changed, and the way that you kind of looked at things slightly changed. So, I'd like to think that your the work you did on that interview leading up to it, you know, had an had an influence on the way you think.
1: Well, I think I think I, I'm more much more comfortable explaining things theologically than before. So, yeah. because because by explaining it without the theology, it's it's incomplete. Like if you truly say. Uh, I believe in, in a fundamental, uh, you know, freedom for everyone. Then you accept the trans mania, right? Then you accept pedophilia. Then you accept all these terrible things. But if you say, I actually believe in, well, Doug has a good point about the, the friend-enemy distinction, the Carl Schmittian distinction, a friend and enemy. And he was like pro-Second Amendment for Christians, <laughs> you know, pro-free market for Christians. It's back to the old enlightenment idea. These ideas are wonderful, but they have to be constrained morally. And they cannot be given to people who do not have that same moral foundation because that leads to tyranny and chaos. And I think that's essentially what the West is these days, absolute freedom without any moral foundation to contain it. So I'm much more comfortable explaining things in that way rather than in the secular way, because in the secular way, it doesn't work as an explanation.
0: Obviously, you've got you've got kids. How about your kids? Do you do you teach them Bible stories? Do you take a Sunday school? Like, what what happens on on Sunday mornings in the cabinet castle?
1: Uh, no, we don't go to church. Uh, ironically, I went hunting the other week, <laughs> and uh, I shot an animal. And then I, I I was I brought my daughter for the for the dressing of of the of the carcass, you know, take off the skin and all that sort of stuff. And and then my daughter says, you know, did, did he go to heaven? I said, yes, of course he did. Like, but how? He's right here. Yeah. <laughs> like, no, 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 his soul went to heaven. Like, what's a soul? Well, that opens up a can of worms. <laughs> I have to explain what a soul is. And whether whether animals have souls is actually quite a big question in Christianity. So. So I don't know, but but she understands the concept of of, of all of that stuff. Uh, but through through practice, we don't need to. You know, we don't we don't go to church uh, because I do find the church is, for the most part, ideologically captured. Uh, you know, there's quite a few churches around me, and they all like, you know, be an ally and all that bullshit. And that's not the church I want to go to. But um, yeah, the, the kids are starting to understand what it means through practice. Thank you, Rob. Maybe Ramon
0: Kamenek will become, uh, you know, Father Ramon at some point in time, and maybe he'll start up his own congregation, church, Church of the uh, the Flying Pink Elephants or something. I don't know, you know, you never know. But uh, no, it's it's interesting to to hear your thoughts on that. Um, I'm very curious. Obviously, for those who who don't know, you actually had a stint in a political party you actually ran for them as a member of parliament
1: yes in 2019 that was fun put me off politics to be honest um so what tell, tell me about that what happened we had weird funders who came to us and said you know we we see you guys um this is myself and kenton Pele, uh, a good friend of mine and the, these people sort of knew about us they heard me on really good report they heard him on really good report as well they're like we really like your ideas make a 10-point plan, get registered as a political party, and we'll give you lots of money to campaign for the election. So we did that. And then when it was time for the funding to arrive, it didn't arrive at all. But we were stuck because we told people that we were running. So we basically pulled a bit of money together. I think it was 300,000 rand. And we ran a six-week digital campaign that garnered us 16,000 votes, I think. And uh, yeah, that's where it sort of ended. 16,000
0: votes, though. That's more than Black First Land First.
1: A... Beat we beat the PA. and McKenzie at the same election got 6,600 votes. And I only realized that when I actually met gayton I was like, oh my God, we beat you by like three times. <laughs> we should have stayed. <laughs> we should have stayed as a political body. We'll be in by now. So yeah, but, but it I mean. It's going to be the size of the EFF, but yeah, who knows? But I do think that political party, it's called the Capitalist Party of South Africa, the famous logo was the purple cow logo. I really think it it sort of did change politics a little bit because I think it did pull the DA towards sort of more of the center-right. And um, yeah, people really, we had a lot of fans. A lot of people on Twitter changed their profile to that purple cow. In the streets, when we had a there is actually bench. somebody
0: still on Twitter with that purple cow.
1: Yeah, yeah. Like I, I think if we st- stuck with it, but I was just so disappointed <laughs> the fact that the funders pulled out, even though they told us to to perhaps do it. And then when I actually went to the IEC to the, for the count, and I saw like we were seated right next to Black First Land like right next to them. Our table was like a meter away, and I just saw all these people around us. I saw like big ANC guys and like all I wanted to do was like go postal <laughs> I couldn't like it was sort of almost disgusting being in the room with those sort of people and I, I just felt very dirty doing it so yeah that's where it sort of ended
0: so where is the capitalist party of South Africa now
1: it's in hibernation for now but there have, they are have too many parties in South Africa, every Tom Dick and Seepo has one. So, and I often thought to myself, okay, maybe if we won two seats, I would be a member of parliament. And what I was spending my time on Zoom with like literal morons. Okay, pays fine, but mm,
0: I don't know. Well, the funny part is, for those of you who don't know, folks, the uh, party can be seen at capitalist.org.za there's has a wiki page, and it actually quotes your name on it. don't know if you know that.
1: Oh, really? I had no idea whatsoever. Who created that?
0: Yep. I have no idea, but your name is there. It says these are all the founders of the page. So for those of you who want some homework, go look up the Capitalist Party of South Africa, and you can see Ramon's name right there. Was one of the co-founders of the party.
1: So it was actually called, we wanted to call it the SACP, South African Capitalist Party. But unfortunately, the communist copyrighted their name. <laughs> So there's this African Communist Party. It was copyrighted, so we couldn't use it. So... We used um,
0: Z-A-C-P. So we used, yeah. It's a slight variation. That's right.
1: We were hoping uh, to... See use... what you did there. There you go. Share the vote. 15,915 votes. It's not bad for a 200,000, 300,000 rand campaign over six weeks, digital only.
0: Absolutely. Actually, the core, the core values put forward are actually all right. Liberty, equality, tolerance and protection of freedom of expression... Private property, rule of law, right to work, secure property rights, free markets, firearms for self-defense, fraternity. Hey, where do I sign up? This sounds like a great party.
1: Well, if push comes to shove, say. if push comes to shove, we may have to uh, start it up again.
0: Absolutely. So what actually happens when a political party goes into hibernation? Does it cease to exist or is it still there? It's just not on the ballot box? How does it work?
1: No, yeah, no, it's literally still registered at the IEC. And uh, if we want to restart it again, we just tell them and pay the deposit to be on the ballot. And, and there you go. It's possible.
0: Hmm. Well, there you go, folks. If you want to ever vote for us in government, capitalist party of South Africa. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, if it's on the ballot, which it won't be for next uh, election, I'm afraid. So.
0: 2024. What a shame. Which actually brings us on to the question then of 2024. So, what's so what's your what's your view then of 2024? Obviously, a lot of people are pushing it forward as being a watershed moment for South Africa. Everything's going to change. You know, the world's going to whatever. What do you think is going to happen?
1: The ANT is going to win by majority or by, I mean, they have a leeway of four percent. If they get fifty percent, it's cool. If they get forty-six percent, they can they can get their proxy parties to to take them over to fifty percent. I think we should get rid of this notion that this is a watershed election, because I don't think so. They're gonna get somewhere between 46 and 50%, and there are a lot of parties who will push them over to the 50% mark. So yeah that's not too bad but it's actually better than what we have now because then they can't really pass legislation in parliament mm-hmm. so it make it more difficult. much more difficult much more difficult so yeah i, I don't think it's a watershed moment <clears throat> but we'll see uh, we'll see if, if cyril leaves and paul Machatili what he has in mind I, I mean i don't rate the guy don't get me wrong i'm not saying he's a hero but i think he's a little bit more pragmatic than than cyril Less ideological than Cyril, and depending on who his partners are, he could turn slightly right wing. Um, I mean, the corruption and the grifting and all that will will carry on, sure, mm. but it could be a sort of another Jacob Zimmer moment, which I, I wouldn't be against.
0: So, I've I don't know the guy from a Boriso, soap, as, as I'm sure the same goes for you, right? I mean, we hadn't really kind of heard about this guy prior to entering the fray, but. Um, you know, I've watched a couple of his interviews, and it's very actually interesting because when the guy talks, there's a few points, and let's just say all missing. You listen to Cyril talk, there's like always the tried and tested national democratic revolution. We need to have more social welfare, more grants, more blah 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 blah. He talks all the communist points, which is funny, as that's why we often say, even on morning shots as a show, like the corporate South Africa just doesn't understand the ANC as it is underneath Robin Porzo, because it somehow sinks as capitalist, But all the guy's talking points are all very socialist and communist, and he's backed up by the communists. But I do find a lot of those like talking points, those core national democratic revolution, we need to have transformation, all those things, are typically missing from Paul's speeches. Now, whether that's just, he just doesn't include him, and maybe just his, his speech writing isn't as sophisticated, maybe... Maybe you just don't believe in it and you just don't give a crap. I don't really know the guy well enough to say
1: one way or another. So here's the thing. So in Biza, Shiloha was the premier of Hateng from 99 till 2004, somewhere around there, I can't remember. And Paul was his like head of finance for the province. And under Shiloa and Mashatile, the province changed fundamentally in the positive sense. They bought the via bus, that connected Soweto to, to Jo'burg and and then to Santon. They built the Hartrain train as well, which is elitist, but I like it a lot because I am elitist. And they did one or two other things. Uh, they put all the solar geysers in Alexandria on, on all the shacks. So there was a lot of sort of infrastructure development while Paul Mashatile was in control of the Houting province, and listen, it may have been riddled with corruption, and it probably was. Um, As far as I understand, he's got quite a few girlfriends who cost a lot of money every month (laughs) in the region of a few hundred thousand rand each, by the way. So obviously he needs cash for this. And no doubt grifting is is, part of the DNA of the ANC at this point, so don't expect someone who's who's clean. But under Paul Machatili, Houting really sort of thrived. I would argue it is like one of the best political times for Gauteng just in terms of infrastructure. They built Mara's Arch during that time. Um, it was just, yeah, it was very different to what it is today. So if you have that same mindset and really plows money into the ports and the railways and the infrastructure of South Africa as a, as a main policy, it's 10 times better than what we're seeing today.
0: Yeah, but you know, I think we've both said this on many occasions. I mean, Ramaphosa's been the most useless president South Africa's ever seen, right? I mean, it's really gone nowhere underneath the guy. Biggest, biggest letdown ever. So, for those of you who don't know, I mean, there was, uh, I think about two years ago, I remember on your morning shot when you were first kind of during lockdowns, you sat there going, Oh, look at me. I'm a CrossFitter and uh, I go and I do my jujitsu. And yeah, vain little fucker, but. Uh, what happens to your CrossFit and your Jiu Jitsu? You still doing them?
1: No. No, I just do kettlebells a few times a week though. Priorities have changed. I don't want to be on odd Schwarzenegger anymore. I just want to look okay in a speedo. And be able to pick up your daughter and actually run after your kids and play the kids. Yeah, yeah, all that sort of stuff. Things mm-hmm. change fundamentally when you have children, right all the oh, absolutely. all the ego and vanity goes away. Like, you know, I just want to be good enough. For, for what I for what I need to be good at, I don't need to be like world class.
0: so obviously I've met your wife who you know we've uh, we've spoken about many times, and obviously she's far too good for you. I don't know how you managed to drug her and get her to look at you and be like, oh that's that's nice. like jeez, man you must have drugged her heavily. but uh, how long have you been married now?
1: I prefer not to actually talk about personal stuff yeah. <laughs>
0: Marriage has length of time. It's not really that big an issue, though, is it?
1: Well, we've been together. How many years? We've been together since high school. That's what I will tell people. Mm. It's
0: nice. It's nice to see because I think uh, you're coming on to quite a few years now. It's obviously very rare to see in this day and age, as you know, because divorce rates these days, especially amongst our age, is quite high, right?
1: Yeah. So we've been together for 18 years, married for 10. And uh, yeah, it's perfect. I. I have no reason to think anything other than that. I think marriage is very important. I think it's the the sort of cornerstone of any civilization. And you go through it because you made a vow and you must keep your vows. It's very important to do so. So it's working out for us and God bless.
0: Catholic way of looking at things, isn't it? That's nice to see. It's nice to see, man. So, you know, let's summarize it up. So who is Ramon Kavanaugh actually? podcaster who started out was renegade report just on a dare off twitter he uh went off and did the capitalist party of south africa and got more votes than gays can <laughs> yeah he's is a he's a guy who started up morning shot for fun just so you could rip at a camera because the master's office was closed and uh here we are today going strong And uh, so tell us what's
1: next for Ramon. Uh, Well, I think uh, what people need to understand is when you make content, like people just approach you because they know you, right? Like we get close to 700,000 views on this, on this channel, or on, on the YouTube channel, at least every month. And we get a few emails, like, you know, the, the chief executive of XYZ company, we're like, Jesus, this guy's very important, makes millions of rands and, he likes our stuff. So who knows what's next, but there are sort of opportunities arising all the time, especially when you make content on, on the internet. But I've never, ever, ever, ever had a plan in life. I really did not. I always was sort of action bias orientated. It's like, just do it, man. Like just, you know, you want to do YouTube, just do YouTube. Like then think about it or, you know, study it or theorize forever. And there's always a lot of people it's like, reminds me of that movie, The Rock, with uh, Sean Connery, where he sell, tells Nicholas Cage's his character. He's like, <laughs> you know, losers always talk about, oh, what's the, what's the quote? Always, yes, losers always talk about trying their best while winners are going home fucking the prom queen. Now, I'm not that kind of guy, but I do think, like, iterative... If doing something every day better than yesterday is far more important than having like a 10 year plan. Cause 10 year plans are bullshit. You know, you're not going to achieve anything in 10 years time. And yeah, that, that's basically who I am. So I have no idea what, what's next uh, for me. Our, our morning shop definitely is still going to be here for many years to come. I've still got plenty of work to do. So I don't know, Byron. I don't know what's next. Who knows what might arise tomorrow in my email inbox or my Twitter DMs? Well,
0: with that being said, thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for joining us. I hope you found an interview of actually Ramon, and Ramon talking about himself for once. actually informative and interesting. If you haven't already, please consider joining our Substack as a paid Patreon, You'll donations do help us keep the lights on and helps us improve and create the content that we do for you if you haven't already please uh join our youtube channel morning shot and uh like share subscribe all the usual stuff and until next time we'll see you soon thanks very much